Stick with this flame, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand. Stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam. Put some respect on my name. Sick like a rain, click and I bang. Y'all gon' remember the name. Y'all gon' remember the name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we have got on a brilliant guest with a brilliant mind. This is Michael Jones. He runs the Inspiring Philosophy YouTube channel. He's a well-known Christian YouTuber and influencer. So welcome to the channel, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Honored to be here. No doubt. Michael, I've done a brief intro there explaining a little bit about who you are and what you do. But for people who aren't familiar, please give them a longer form intro. Yeah, so I run a YouTube channel called Inspiring Philosophy. It's a nonprofit organization, and I make various videos defending Christianity from different perspectives. Right now, I'm working on a series on the reliability of the Gospels. I've done a series on evidence for the Exodus. Uh, I've done a series on the benefits of Christian religiosity and done numerous videos in that area. So I just typically do different video series on topics I'm interested in. And then I also do like TikTok, Instagram style videos where I respond to some of the nonsense out there. So that's generally what I do now. No doubt, man. T tell me a little bit about your your personal life and faith journey. How did you come to the point of doing this? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I Many, many moons ago, I tell people, uh, I was I just had a security job where I sat in a trailer all night. Uh, I was fresh out of college. I didn't have a job yet. So I'm just sitting there with internet and not having to do anything for eight hours. And I'm like, I guess I can start making some videos. So this was back in like 2011. And so I just saw, saw a need on YouTube. There was a lack of, I thought, just good Christian content. And I thought, well, I guess I can make a few. Uh, and then it just snowballed. People asked me to keep doing more and more. And then I just kept growing. And the rest is history. Here I am. Okay. And um, were you, are you from a Christian family? Have you always been a person of faith? Yeah. Well, not necessarily. I went through definitely a period where I was more of a deist, you know, in like high school years. Uh, what ironically started to lead me back to Christianity was I had friends that were uh, giving me arguments against Christianity, saying things like, oh, we know that Jesus was just based off the life of Horus. Now, I was a nerd and still am. So I read Egyptian mythology and Greek mythology for fun. You know how kids are these days. And so I knew that was nonsense. And I'm like, these are, these arguments are trash. So slowly but surely, I was like, well, let me just read what the other side has. And so I read some work from Christian apologists at the time. I read C.S. Lewis. And I'm like, well, the Christian side does seem to be making more sense. And then it was just a slow, gradual process that led me back to Christianity. And then I eventually started defending it myself. That's interesting. Where, where do you think that Christianity is right now? Let's say both in the USA and across the West. I think this is something that we both have a keen interest in, in just sort of seeing where society, culture, religiosity, politics, all of these things which are interconnected. Um, I think one issue we're sort of having in the modern West, in my opinion, is wanting to put everything in a silo disconnecting mental health from physical health from spiritual health disconnecting the impact that the economy and politics and religion has on family and relationship dynamics everything is in a web i don't think you can isolate uh, technology massive factor and i think people sort of isolate these things they want to have a conversation just about technology or just mm -hmm. about uh marriage or 
just about politics or just, and I'm like, yeah, you can separate these things, but they are all interconnected. You can't have a serious conversation about, let's say, male-female relationships and marriage and children and not, you know, not talk about religion, not talk about politics, not talk about the economy and finances, because all of these things, as well as many other things, are all connected together. So where do you give us the state of play of where you think we are in the modern West? Well, there's that old saying, great men create great times. Great times produce weak men, weak men produce strong men, strong men produce great times. And I think we go through those cycles. I think we're in the cycle right now of weak men are creating hard times. I think that's kind of where we're at. I think we've forgotten our Christian heritage. I think a lot of people are oblivious to the benefits Christianity has given us and how Western civilization is really just built on the foundation of Christianity. And so Christianity is declining because in for many reasons, one of the reasons is the increasing wealth rates. When people prosper, they don't think they need religion. Religion thrives among the poor, uh, among the people that are going through hard times. Uh, it does not, it's not been historically practiced as much among the elites or the wealthy. So the wealthier and more comfortable societies get, religion tends to decline. And so we're kind of in that phase. America is the most blessed nation that has ever existed on this planet. And so we've become very wealthy and, you know, we're forgetting where we came from and how we got here. We're forgetting our Christian religious heritage. And that's going to have long-term consequences. And I don't think people realize the long-term consequences that we'll have. I think we are going through that cycle again, where we will enter hard times. Uh, But I am hopeful long-term. I think that we will come out of that because we'll produce strong men that will lead us back to more of a Christian heritage, which I think is necessary for our civilization to thrive for various reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, What are some of the, I have ideas about this, but I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts on what some of those consequences are going to be or what they already are of declining religiosity? Yeah, I'll give you two to start with. So there was a study done I've cited it often. Uh, It was called National Context, Religiosity and Volunteering Results from 53 Countries. And they looked at church-going activities and how it affected uh, volunteering. Uh, And what they found was that in nations that were more religious, uh, people volunteered for charities more, including secular organizations. So they were not just sweeping the floors of their church. They were going out and they were doing all sorts of types of activities. But it also had a strong spillover effect. So secular individuals in these religious nations tended to do more charity work. But what they also noted is that as nations secularized, religious individuals were still working for charities and doing work. Secular individuals were not anymore. So charity work started to decline. So uh, they say uh, religious volunteering had a strong spillover effect, implying that religious citizens volunteer more for secular organizations. And they also noted that if this secularization process continues, we should see uh, declining levels of people donating money and time to charity. Uh, Another one, which I think is probably going to be much harsher that people don't realize is that humans are religious by nature. Uh, Mm. We don't, when people leave traditional religions, they kind of remain religious. Our research shows that atheists are more politically active than Christians or people that are religious. Why? Because when you leave traditional religions, 
politics often becomes the new God. And so mm -hmm. researchers like Roger Brubaker, Philip Gorski have noted that when people leave traditional religions, they tend to just form political religions or they treat politics as the new God. That has a very dangerous effect. I've argued before that I think Nazism, like actually under Hitler, was a political religion. Political religions tend to lead to more tribalism, more prejudice, even racism. And uh, various research, various papers have shown this. So, you know, we see, for example, that people that are more politically right, when they leave Christianity, uh, they don't just leave Christianity. They leave the, the intrinsic beliefs, the doctrines, but they take the Christian symbols with them and they just reinvent them in a political ideology and just reuse it in that sort of way. Mm -hmm. We see people on the left do this as well, uh, just in a different flavor and a different uh, tone, so to speak. Uh, but we tend to see these sort of rises to political to political religions. And so those can be quite dangerous. They have been historically, and they tend to create more polarization, more dogmatism, even more prejudice towards people that are not like you, whereas traditional religions like Christianity tend to reduce racism and prejudice. So just in terms of those two things, those are two among many other factors that I could see mm -hmm. happening from the decline of religiosity. Other things are like uh, care for the environment is tied to high levels of religiosity. Uh, depression is tied, lower levels of depression is tied to higher levels of religiosity. Violence, aggression, drug abuse, all of these things are, are they tend to reduce when people are more intrinsically religious. But as these are declining, what do we expect is going to happen? Well, we see society becoming more depressed, more lonely, more suicidal, more drug abuse is, is going skyrocketing at this point. So, I mean, like, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. Some of the statistics are are really sad in this regard. I mean, I know in the USA, for example, I, there's over 100,000 Americans a year are dying from drug overdoses and that's deaths. So if you think 100,000 are dying, I wouldn't surprise me if a million are overdosing. Um, and I think it's another 100,000 from alcohol. I know that in the UK, under the age of 40, um, the leading cause of death for men in the UK is suicide. So if you really think deeply about it, the thing that's most likely to kill you as a man in the UK is yourself. The same is true for women under the age of 35. I think for men, it goes all the way up to 40 or 45 that it remains the leading cause. And most people aren't even aware of these statistics. And when they are, all the conversation is simply, we need more therapy, you know, mental health, mental health. We need, we need more therapy. We need more uh, drugs to help these people and so on. And it's fascinating to me that there's never the conversation about, um, number one, diet and physical fitness and nutrition, because they think that physical and mental health are completely separated. And of course, even in, in such an increasingly secular society, the UK is more secular than, than the US is in many ways. Um, of course, there's no conversation about the role of religion or God or spirituality in there because that makes people nervous once you start using that kind of talk and you know you can't just mm -hmm. uh you, you take it outside the realm of sort of the pure hard science then people start to become uncomfortable with that or they worry i think people worry that they might be um i, I think there's a lot of fear that people might think that if they use some of this terminology then they may be alienating someone or they may be um sort of stepping on someone's toes in a way and i think that what this leads to if I can use a metaphor, I think it's kind of like 
I don't know, fighting a problem with one hand tied behind your back or trying to paint a picture and you're not allowed to use blue, right? Okay, you've got you've got red, you've got yellow, you've got these other colors, but like you're just not allowed to use blue. Whereas if you mm-hmm. have a religious understanding and you're willing to step into that realm and talk about it seriously and think about it seriously, it's like you have as- you have access to all the colors. You can talk about, right? We can talk about science. We can talk about the mind. We can talk about the body. We can talk about studies and so on, but we can also talk about God. We can also talk about religion. We can also talk about Christianity. Whereas if you've got to mm-hmm. cut off that entire branch, which we've had for thousands of years, and now you're trying to make sense of everything without having access to that color, then I think you're always going to be limited and you're always going to misdiagnose the problem. Uh, I think so many problems we're dealing with now in the West and across the world ultimately are spiritual problems. And I think that's always been the case. Right. Well, it's also, I think there's a disconnect between the elites, academia, and the general population. There always Mm -hmm. has been historically. A lot of people in academia, they have a purpose. They're one of the elites. They may be a college professor, a billionaire, a millionaire, a politician. So they have something that they can live for that drives them. What does the checkout uh, clerk live for? What does the... uh, even the pharmacists or the construction worker live for. Okay. Well tell them the typical materialist paradigm that's, you know, throughout academia, throughout the elitist culture. We, you know, you're just basically a collection of cells live to have some fun, take care of some people and you'll die and be forgotten or tell the poor, the middle-class, the creator of the universe became man and died for you so that you can be resurrected and be eternal with him which is going to motivate people to live a good, decent life, a fulfilling life, and be happy where they are? Well, it's obviously going to be Christianity. But a lot of the elites don't realize that because they have a purpose in whatever they're doing as an elite of society. And they just assume that the average man, the average woman, can have that same feeling from whatever they're doing. It just doesn't work. If you go back to the ancient Roman world, there was Christianity and there were various Gnostic groups. The Gnostic groups attracted a lot of the elites and they were centered around that idea, this idea that you have secret knowledge and you're special and only select are chosen to be a part of our special religious group. And the poor, the women, the slaves gravitated towards Christianity because it gave them something the world could not, that Gnostic groups could not, to be treated like an equal, to be treated like someone who has meaning and is going to, uh, that God wants to be alive and has a purpose for them, even if they feel small in the world. So I think what a lot of elites don't realize, a lot of people in academia, is how essential Christianity is for helping the common man feel like he is uh, living for something, to get over things like depression and not feel like it's all useless. And so this historical disconnect is is driving this. The elites are telling us they're uh, creating the culture they want, more of a secular, materialist type culture. And the people tend to just tend to follow the elites. This is just historically the way it is. But the more we move away from Christianity, we're going to see people, uh, the poor, for example, middle class, being driven more towards hedonistic type solutions to their lack of purpose and meaning. So we'll see, we'll continue to see a rise of delinquency and drug abuse, violence, depression, suicide. It's quite tragic, but there's a reason that that the poor, uh, the downtrodden always gravitate towards Christianity and the elites and the elites have not. Mm. It, it's so interesting that you say that because I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying there. And I'm also aware that that in itself 
is something that some people use as a criticism of religion or Christianity, right? I think it was, wasn't it Karl Marx himself who said, uh, you know, religion is the opiate of, of the masses, or I've heard people, uh, you know, some of my intelligent atheist friends, one of their criticisms, and it's a bit of an odd criticism in a way, but you know, it's, I guess if you think, I guess if you ultimately do not believe then the criticism makes sense. Whereas if you do believe that it's, it's not really a criticism, which is when people say, you know, that it's like, it's a crutch. Oh, you know, religion mm -hmm. is a crutch or belief in God is, it's a crutch that you can use when uh, you're going through a difficult time or when somebody dies or um, what whatever it is. And that's deemed as this criticism. And I, yeah, like I said, I can see if you think the whole thing doesn't make sense, then I can understand that. But I'm like, okay, so the problem is that people have something they can fall back on and that supports them and gives them meaning and purpose. You, you, you see what I mean? It's a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a funny, it's a bit of a funny criticism. It's like, well, why would you want to pull that away from people on mass and then be surprised when they stumble and they fall over and they fall into depression and they're having problems because people are always going to need to have something. As you've already said, you can't just have a hole there. You cannot mm -hmm. just have a hole. And I, th I think we've, I think what's interesting about the time we're in right now in the sort of mid 2020s is that I think we've largely run the experiment just over the last two decades. I remember back in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, I remember the sort of rise of the sort of new atheist movement. And I remember a lot of people pushing the idea that, man, if we could just get people to be less religious, then uh, they'll be happier and they'll be less discriminatory and they'll be more moral and they'll treat each other better and there'll be less fighting and less war and all of these things. And everyone's just gonna be super rational and based in science and whatever. And now we're here and it's, you know, what is a woman? How many genders there are? Like what, like people have lost the most basic, right? People who are supposed to be super great. It, it, it amazes me when I see these people who are supposed to be like the most scientific, rational, sensible minds and they're there trying to make a defense of, you know, how men can get pregnant and stuff like that. And I'm just like, boy, you, you've just lost the plot. And it, it's just not turning out in the way that I think that the way I think they imagined it would. Yeah. G.K. Chesterton said it's Christian ethics gone mad. You take what you like from Christianity and you just take it to its, its this extreme understanding of it where you just you're trying to be so compassionate. You fall over, you pull the rug right out from under you. You know, and so like, for example, when you pull yourself away from the foundation, like the Christian doctrines and beliefs that you're tethered to, there's no telling where you're going to go to with what you've cherry picked out of Christianity. So, for example, my pastor will say sometimes, you know, the one good thing about scripture is it put it puts guardrails on certain things. So, for example, in Romans, Paul says, submit to governing authorities. But there's a guardrail in First Samuel 8 where. Uh, God tells Samuel, you know, if you have a king and authority figure, it's going to be bad. He's going to oppress you. So governments are set up by God and used for, you know, enacting justice, but they're not necessarily the best thing. So we shouldn't worship them, but we still need to submit to them. You, you get guardrails in these types of things. And that point about Karl Marx, you know, saying it's like the opium of the people. Yeah, that's a popular idea, but it's a total misconception because they don't know the real sociology around Christianity and what it's actually done for humanity. Like numerous studies have shown that it wasn't the opium of the people. It gave people purpose and meaning. It made them satisfied by life. But 
you know, thinkers like Karl Marx left out the other factor, that it also motivated people to make the world a better place. So you look at research like Robert Woodbury, he wrote a paper called the, uh, the Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. There's other research like the Protestant Legacy, Mission and Literacy Rates in India, uh, Christian Missionaries in Education in Former African Colonies, How Competition Mattered, uh, The Long-Term Effects of the Printing Press in Sub-Saharan Africa. Another one, diffusing knowledge while spreading God's message, Protestantism and economic prosperity in China. What we see is that when the Protestant Reformation took off, Luther, Martin Luther, encouraged everyone to read. He said that we need boy and girl schools in every town. Everyone should learn to read so they can read the Bible. Meanwhile, the Ottoman Empire is banning the printing press, unfortunately. But this caused an explosion of education throughout Europe. And then, because they were driven by the command of the Great Commission— they took this around the world. And so what all these studies show is that proximity to a Protestant medical mission or a Protestant missionary in places like India, Africa, the Americas, led to higher economic growth, more education, better uh, hygiene habits, more access to hospitals, more access to better medical care, including economic prosperity. Studies have shown that in China and India, uh, Protestant influence, missionary influence, uh, including even some Catholic influence, led to even more economic prosperity. So religion is not the opium of the people. Maybe other religions are. But in Christianity, it made people overcome issues like depression, give they gave themselves purpose and meaning. But it also led them to make a better world. It led them to do things like go around and just build a hospital in India. Why? Because the people needed it. Uh, like It's actually quite phenomenal how much the Christian missionaries have done. And now numerous studies have actually shown this. I'm working on a video now for my YouTube channel titled How Christianity Changed the World. And I'm just going to go through study after study after study of how Protestant and Catholic missionaries went to places like India, China, and Africa. And they just created an explosion of education and economic growth just from showing up and wanting people to read the Bible. It's So what was motivating that? Well, it was Christianity itself. The, the need to uh, get people to read the Bible and go and make disciples of all nations. Christianity led to massive economic growth and people didn't even realize this was what was going to happen, but they were just trying to convert people, but this is what happened. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, one, one thing I have noticed is with lots of the conversations I have both privately and publicly with people around the world is I'm noticing over the last five to six years in particular, uh, and some of these are very prominent people who have made their positions public. But I've noticed that a lot of people who were the anti-religion type of atheist, let's say 10 plus years ago, I found that in the last few years, a lot of these people, some of whom I know personally, have softened. I know people who have straight up converted to either becoming theists or becoming uh, Christians. But even those who haven't, They've softened their stance towards Christianity and perhaps religion as a, as a wider category. And a lot of this has been driven actually by some of the madness and the excesses and the cultural and social decline and decay that they've seen. I mean, to, to give some prominent examples of this, uh, Joe Rogan, very mm -hmm. prominent example. If you go back and listen to his podcast from, I don't know, 2011 or 2012, and you hear him talking about uh, religion or Christianity versus you hear him talking about it now. Um, a guy like Andrew Tate, who I've had conversations with, who used to be, you know, a straight up atheist, 
Um, you know, he dabbled in Christianity. Now he's he's converted to Islam. But his reason for that even happening, I think, is is quite interesting. If you listen to it, you know, he's like, well, I, I, I saw the devil. <laughs> I saw I saw true evil. And that's very much real. So therefore, the opposite must exist. I have personal friends who I've had some, you know, long form, deep conversations with privately. And a lot of them have just been like, man, there's you know, they, they kind of just wrote off Christianity, right? They, they wrote it off in their teens or in their 20s. It's so like, whatever, like, we, we don't need this. This is just myths, whatever. And then they're just seeing where the world is going. They're seeing how things are changing. And they're like, hmm, I may not be a person of faith myself. Like, I, I'm not fully on board with this, but they can recognize, they can recognize the positives. They can recognize the value of the, the purpose, the meaning, the community, the community, um, the the principles, having something firm to stand on and grasp onto as the waters get more and more choppy, as the wind blows stronger, and they're kind of just seeing, look, there's a lot of proof in the pudding, right? You mm -hmm. can, <laughs> you know, by, by their fruits, you shall know them. You, you can see all the chaos that's going on right now. Like, look at the USA, look at some of the turmoil going on in Europe or whatever. Who is standing firm who is taking care of their family who is maintaining a positive and optimistic attitude throughout it who is not getting addicted to drugs and uh, alcohol and all these other things which man heck there there's good reason to there, there's good reason to get involved in all of these things right like if you look at it in a certain way and it's not you know it's not exclusively people of faith but i think a lot of people are seeing man like these Christians or you know even these these Muslims or these Jews like they're they're kind of stand they're, they're standing a lot more firm comparatively um compared to others I mean you can even look at who is reproducing right mm -hmm. something as as simple but as important like as a species that's a pretty important metric like who's <laughs> even who, who's actually propagating the species and when you look at all of these things as you've said the numbers are much higher um, in many cases amongst religious group. I, as far as I know, I think they've even shown that on average, I don't even know how they work this one out. I think they look through obituaries or something. So I'll take this one with a bit of grain of salt. But um, I think they've shown that religious people are living three to four years longer on average, which in itself is a pretty fascinating statistic. And that came out from a secular source. Um, so yeah, there's there's some interesting things going on. So I think people's gears are turning and perhaps maybe i'm being optimistic here perhaps we're at the very early stages of some type of revival or renewal in the way that people approach this topic i i would say that's a possibility but i think we probably need to go through more more turmoil to get to like a full-on revival again as i yeah. said just sociologically speaking people turn to religion in times of trouble we're not there yet people are turning more inward. They're focusing more on the self, me, 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 hedonism here, hedonism there. And then they're wondering why they're depressed. They're wondering why they're suicidal or they're alone. Uh, and, you know, we've disconnected ourselves from our standard way we formed communities 50 years ago, which was going to church. You know, I go to church twice a week. You know, I go, I go once for a Bible study and then I go on Sunday and, you know, people go there. It's a good place to connect. It's a good way for kids to socialize uh, you know, that, that's, you know, you also mentioned the birth rates there. I mean, there, there's a guy at my church who has 12 kids. All of them are homeschooled. There are 
people that go to my church have four or five kids. You would never find that in an atheist community or a secular community. You're going to find more people that are single or if they are married, they're going to have one or two kids at the most. So, I mean, you know, who's going to create the next generation? It's going to be religious people. There's an evolutionary biologist named Michael Bloom who has argued religion is never going to go away because it's selected for given its amount of how it helps birth rates. So, I mean, secularism, I'm not too worried about it long term because it's just unstable. It doesn't produce a population replacement for, you know, there's not going to be the next generation of secularists that are going to come in and just take over. Who's producing the next generation? Religious people. But secularism is also creating more polarization. You go back to the 90s, religious, conservative religious individuals would send their kids to state schools or secular schools. There's less of that happening. There's more homeschooling happening now than there has in the past like 30 or 40 years. A lot of these conservative religious individuals don't want to educate their kids in secular institutions or in public schools. So secular secularism creates uh, does not create a replacement population. It's just they have far less kids than religious families. But they also create more polarization. They cause religious people to polarize more and want to protect their kids more. So it's a, it's a completely defeating system. We're going to cycle mm. back to more of a religious uh, uh, society. And sociologists like Kenneth Kaufman have noted this. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, one of the conclusions I've, I've come to, and we, we touched on this earlier, but I, I don't think that, I think that true secularism is a myth. I think it's a myth. I think it's an idea that sounds in principle like it would make sense, like you can just have this sort of value neutral, ideology neutral way of having any system, right? Whether it's a nation, it could be a school, it could be a family, whatever, right? We're just going to be totally neutral. Um, I just don't think it exists. Number one, because people's beliefs and values and morality and ethics are always going to influence what they're, let's say you're raising a child, right? There's people who say, oh, um, religious people shouldn't raise their children in their faith. And I'm like, how would you even propose, but, but I'm a bit like, how do you, how do you even propose that that happens, right? Like if, if I'm a Christian and I have children, how, how can I raise them without imbibing some of that <laughs> into like, like it, Number one, why would I want to? And number one, even if I did want to for some bizarre reason, like I don't think you can. And then I just think you have the the problem of a vacuum, right? Like as you've already said, it gets filled in with political ideology. It gets filled in with all these isms and schisms. It could be feminism. It could be climate changeism. It could be uh, it could be veganism. It could be like some people are truly religious about their diets. Um, I tell people, you know, here, here's an interesting thing, Michael. Um, I get asked a lot if I've ever lost uh, friends or relationships by being rather outspoken, whether this is about, you know, my political views or my religious views or sharing my thoughts during the whole pandemic period or whatever it is. And I tell people I have never lost a friend or a relationship with a family member because of any of my views. Um, I have lost one friendship <laughs> uh, with a guy who became a vegan. I've never, I've, I've never lost a friend off of like a religious difference, a political difference. I had one friend who became a vegan and he, he stopped associating with anybody who eats meat. He went from thinking that I was a good person to thinking I was a bad person because I 
I eat meat and animal-based products. Like that's the only friend of all, of all the things, of all the things, all the controversial issues I've put out thoughts on. And that just shows like, obviously this is one example and this is an extreme example. I also have vegan friends, um, but it just shows how people can take any type of ideology or belief system and become extremely zealous about it. People think that zealotry is somehow limited to religious people. And I'm like, dude, like, have you seen these people protesting in the streets in America? Like with their, have you seen these like pro-abortion protests or like the sort of, I don't know, whatever's going on now with people's thoughts about you know, the, the Ukraine war, the Israel-Palestine war, whatever, like people, um, I don't know, man, human beings are, we're, 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 very, inter we're very interesting creatures. Yeah, well, pe humans are just tribal in general, and we're going to pick tribes and want to fight. This is why I really like sports to some degree, because it channels our competitiveness in ways that are not as harmful. Uh, but humans just naturally tend to do this. And so if you get rid of Christianity, you're not going to get rid of war. In fact, there was a study, uh, I'll cite another study because I like doing that. It's called The Influence of Religion on Interstate Armed Conflict uh, by Davis Brown. And he looked at three religions, Buddhism, Islam, and Christianity. Buddhism was non-significant, didn't correlate with more interstate armed conflict or less. Islam correlated with more interstate armed conflict and Christianity negatively uh, correlated with more interstate armed conflict. So people think if we just get rid of religion, specifically Christianity, we'll reduce war. Well, the data doesn't bear that out. Uh, we also see research that shows that uh, religious individuals in the West are less likely to be violent or resort to violent or want to participate in armed conflicts. And so... What's happening in the U.S.? We're secularizing and everyone's getting more tribal, calling for more, you know, I've never thought I would live to see the day that I would see a lot of Democrats calling for more war, sending more uh, troops abroad to places like Ukraine and uh, the Middle East. And I was like, I thought we wanted less of this. I thought we wanted more negotiation and peace deals. And it just, I don't know what happened. It was, it was shocking to me for many, many months. Mm. Uh, but I mean, like, you know, what is going to actually, you know, fix, get us out of this? Well, I mean, people that a lot of the elites, as I mentioned, think there's got to be more therapy, more drugs, and they think Christianity is the problem. But if you look into the studies, the data shows the opposite. I mean, if we would mm. actually try to go out and make people more Christian, we'd probably see less depression, less violence, less cause for more war, less tribalism, uh, less racism, even there was an 2010 amendment analysis I could cite that goes into that. I mean, there's just so much research that bears this out. It's And people just don't know about it. It's unfortunate. <laughs> but a lot of the sociologists have been doing this research for years, and they keep finding the same conclusions. Christian religiosity leads to a better society and better health outcomes in multiple ways. Yeah. I, I think that a lot of people are not intellectually honest or are intellectually lazy when it comes to these type of topics. So one one of the things you hear all the time, I'm sure you get this all the time, is um, oh, you know, most wars are most wars are fought because of religion. Yeah. I'm just like that's complete. That, I'm like that is utterly false. Like there, that that that's completely great, false. There's a great book called right. The Myth of Religious Violence by William Cavanaugh. And every historian I've ever talked about the history of religion and wars, atheists, Christians, Jews, you name it, have always said, yeah, just read that book. That explains it all. So mm. that's like just one of the most highly cited books in this. And so, yeah, yeah it's, it's uh, nonsense. It, it's also just like, bro, look at the last, look at the last century. Look at the, <laughs> look at, look at the previous century and tell me which ideologies 
led to the mass slaughters and genocides of people. Like, you know, it wasn't Mao and Stalin and Hitler and Pol Pot and all these dudes were not, um, these were not sort of people trying to spread, trying to spread their faith. They, they were deeply ideological, extremely mm -hmm. ideological and extremely tribal. But this is like, you know, these are guys trying to do et ethnic cleansing, people starving tens, hundreds, potentially hundreds of millions of people to death. Um, and it, it's strange that people don't just look at that and just see, okay, maybe I need to analyze this. Have there been religious wars? Yes, absolutely. And I would be mm -hmm. ridiculous to deny that. I, I think another thing that happens with a lot of these conversations is um, I find that people often don't consider the counterfactual, right? So people don't think, okay, are, are there people who commit violence in the name of religion? And have there been? Yes, absolutely. Can't, can't deny it. It's a fact. Um, however, what about, have, 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 have people ever stopped to consider how much potential, look, we, human beings are, we're, we're a violent species, man, a very potentially very violent species. How much of that, how much of that potential violence has been prevented because people are religious and people do value human life in a certain way and do see other people as living images of God and so on, right? Like people, people don't consider that. And look, we, we can't know the exact facts because we haven't sort of run this scenario. It's a, it's a little bit like when it comes to the conversations about um, gun violence in America, right? People rarely consider, okay, well, how much is prevented? How much crime is prevented? How many killings are prevented? How much of that is prevented by uh, people having guns? Right. And you, you, you can never know it exactly because the incidents didn't occur. Um, but from what I've seen, according to studies I have seen, it's like actually, oh, there's there's more defensive uses than there are offensive uses. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I just I just think in this case, people don't really do the thinking and genuine consideration they have in their idea. OK, well, religion bad. I don't like religion, religion bad. So therefore, let me take like the worst and most extreme examples of all of it and act like that's just normal. Like, let, let me pretend that the average Christian or the average Muslim or the average Jew or the average Hindu is like some extreme genocidal maniac who wants to, you know, it's just like, man, I, I'm aware that terrible people exist, right? And sadly, there's terrible people who exist who call themselves, you know, religious or Christian or Muslim or whatever it is. Um, and they violate the most basic tenets of what they're supposed to believe in but can we also not pretend that this is like some type of norm or average or that the vast 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 majority of people who are of faith do not absolutely and utterly condemn that and want to not even be associated with it people do the same thing oh well what well, well zuby what about what about the catholic church right what about like this thing that happened? i'm like dude i'm, you know, I'm not going to sit here and defend I'm not here trying to defend these actions, but can we also not pretend that like the average Catholic, let alone Christian, um, is, is sort of condoning that or is supporting, like they will condemn it even harder because they don't want that to even be the face or even associated with their faith. Yeah. In sociology, it's called a bivary means comparison. You just look at two factors and you assume they're related. So we see mm -hmm. that in the summer, uh, for example, 
more people eat ice cream, but also uh, sexual uh, victims increase as well in the summer. Mm. Well, it's not because eating ice cream leads to more sexual abuse. It's that it's the summer. More people are out. People are wearing less clothes. And so, you know, people don't want to go out and try to uh, attack someone when it's cold outside. They tend to do it more in the summer. So we take a bivariate means comparison when you just look at two variables and assume there's a connection. People do this all the time with religion. And you got to do a multivariate analysis, which is a lot of the sociological research I cite. Just because we may find two things connected, that doesn't mean that one causes the other. You know, that's a you know, correlation is not causation issue. For example, people tend to assume that religiosity leads to more LGBTQ prejudice. Now, look, I'm not in favor of that lifestyle, but I don't think we should be prejudiced against them. So well, there was a study done in Brazil, and there have been some done in America, where they, they looked at this with more, more variables. And they found that religiosity was not tied to prejudice of LGBTQ individuals. It was tied more to traditionalism and right-wing authoritarianism, these two other variables. So they were correlated, religiosity and prejudice, but one was not positively associated. So it's very unlikely to be the cause. In fact, they noted that when you factor in these other two variables, traditionalism and right-wing authoritarianism, uh, religiosity was actually negatively correlated with prejudice. Mm. So, you know, you know, you just can't assume religious person do bad thing. Therefore, religion's the cause. I could do the same thing. Think of vegans who've committed terrorism. They're, well, their veganism yeah. caused it. Their brains are screwy. They're not getting enough protein. I mean, people make that claim, but you can't do that. Not not everything a vegan does is caused by their veganism. And likewise, not everything a religious person does is caused by their religiosity. Oftentimes, people are actually doing things because they want to gain power, money, uh, they're angry, and then they'll claim religion is the actual reason, like some crazy mm -hmm. person. Just because someone claims that, that doesn't mean that's the actual thing causing it. You got to study this more, look at their psychology, see what's actually leading to it. And of course, there's nothing in the teachings of Christianity to nothing in the teachings of Christ that would make you think that Christians are supposed to go out and commit violence or go out and attack people. It talks about you're going to be persecuted for my name's sake. It talks about, you know, you go and you present the gospel and they reject it, dust the sandals off, move to the next town. It talks about apostates in Christianity and it just says they exist, you know, and it's, it sucks. But I mean, like, that's just the way it is. We can't go out and do anything about it because that God will be their judge. So, I mean, like, mm. there's nothing in the tenets of Christianity that would make you think that it would lead to violence. And, of course, the sociological research bears that out. Yeah. I, I know I, um, I touched on this earlier, Michael. Uh, for people who are agreeing with a lot of what we're saying and who actually follow what could be considered a, a Christian ethic, or there's people I'm sure you've come across who call themselves cultural Christians. So they themselves mm. might be atheistic or agnostic, but they generally agree with the tenets and principles and morality of Christianity. Um, but they're not, they're not there yet. I think there's a lot of people kind of on this, on this fence in terms of all the studying that you've done and the books that you've read and the sources you're familiar with, what do you think would be a sort of next step for those people? I've, I've had conversations mm -hmm. with people who are like, man, Zuby, you know what? Like, I, I like Christianity. I like Christians. I want to believe, but I can't, I can't make myself believe something that I just don't ultimately believe is true. Um, what are your thoughts on that position and what do you think could be uh, a next step for them to at least just explore that a little bit more? Yeah, that's a difficult 
it's difficult to say because, you know, you can't force someone to believe, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when, when those kind of situations, I say two things to people, one, let's start looking at the evidence. I see a lot of people who deconvert and I'm like, well, why did you deconvert? Well, I read a book by this scholar who was an atheist and he critiqued the new Testament. Well, did you read Michael Lacona, Daryl Bach, Luke Vandeweghe? Like, did you read any of these scholars that argue positive evidence for Christianity? Like there's so much out there. Did you, I got numerous videos where I cite numerous books on arguing positive evidence for Christianity. So maybe do a little bit of that, but also I would say start to study your own psychology a little bit. I know in my experience, a lot of people start to leave Christianity when they start to say this little idea, I'm a good person. I don't need a savior. I don't need a God. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of people who come to Christianity saying, you know, I realize I'm a horrible person. I can't get over my own, the own sin in my life. I need help. And they start. So it's this idea of are humans depraved or are humans ultimately moral good? And one leads away from Christianity. The other tends to lead to Christianity. Uh, the other thing I would say is that a lot of these people, like I've heard guests that you've spoken with or guests that Dave Rubin has spoken with, and they're constantly worried about how do we save Western civilization? We got to save it somehow. And they're like, well, Christianity helped build it. Maybe if we just start you know, getting people back to Christian values, that'll fix everything. And I, I look at that and go, that will never work. You can't use Christianity as a means to an end. And I know people are sad to hear that, but that's just a fact. And you know, the gospel message, you know, led to Western civilization, but it wasn't people trying to build Western civilization. It was people just trying to spread the gospel. Uh, people need to become intrinsically religious, uh, actually believe these things, not actually just think, well, let's just take what we like and leave the core foundations. Because, you know, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ did not rise from the dead, what does it matter? It doesn't matter anymore. So we eat and drink tomorrow, we die is all that really matters. So, there's a difference between between intrinsic and extrinsic religiosity. So I basically would say to those people, I mean, like you're in a tough situation because truly the benefits are tied more to the actual intrinsic aspects of Christianity, not just the extrinsic aspect aspects. And there's research that bears that out as well. So, you know, maybe actually try to consider the data more, try to study it more. Maybe there's an element where you have to just sort of live it and just see how it goes, you know, just actually believe. Our podcast today is sponsored by The Wellness Company. Did you know that nearly 90% of pharmaceuticals in the U.S. are produced overseas? That's an alarming statistic. If you don't have an emergency kit on hand, it's time to get prepared. The Wellness Company's medical emergency kit contains eight potentially life-saving medications that every single American should keep in stock. It comes with a 22-page instruction guide on safe medical use for everything from snake bites to COVID to bioterror events. Another stellar product from the wellness company is Spike Support. Whether you got vaxxed or not, the virus is still among us in some capacity, as well as the related spike protein. Spike protein can cause brain fog, tissue damage, blood clots, and more. Spike Support is a detoxification powerhouse that aims to strengthen the body's natural immunity and flush out spike protein, so you can get back to that pre-COVID feeling. Get both of these products by going to twc.health forward slash Zuby and get 15% off with the discount code Zuby. That's twc.health forward slash Zuby and use discount code Zuby to get 15% off. Disclosure, the medical emergency kit is only available to U.S. residents. That really Jesus is king and there is a God and there is a trinity and these types of things. And just see what happens. I don't know. I think every individual is going to be different. I can't speak like, like a sweeping generalization there. But, you know, there are general 
guidelines I can give, general points I hope that would encourage more people because the benefits uh, that we see from Western civilization are really tied to the intrinsic aspects of Christianity, not the extrinsic aspects. Mm. I'm very, I'm very interested by this concept of intrinsic versus extrinsic, because mm-hmm. I think for different people, some people start with the intrinsic and it becomes extrinsic, but I also see that the other way around, right? So you could have someone who is hyper skeptical about it all. And it's like, you know what, just come, come to church, come to mm-hmm. church, right? Sit, sit, sit here and listen and hear the songs and listen to the readings and then they start doing the thing and then by doing the thing and sort of acting it out it actually it go it goes from extrinsic to intrinsic it's a little bit like how um when you're happy you smile but also they found that smiling makes you feel happy and mm-hmm. so it's the, the correlations kind of in both directions so uh, what what are your thoughts what are your thoughts on that? Do you think there's some value in maybe people, if they struggle with starting intrinsically, if they struggle to like ju- just just believe, shall we say, um, do you think it can be helpful to, I don't know, live your life somewhat as a Christian, start going to church, start attending um, studies, have that curiosity, and then it can penetrate from outside? Oh, definitely. I mean, find a good Bible study, you know, start getting involved in that kind of stuff. And, you know, it might come over time. Um, I'm not, I'm definitely not saying that that's not going to help. What I'm talking about, the intrinsic, extrinsic divide, these these are terms actually used in sociology uh, to differentiate between different religious people. Someone who is extrinsically religious in sociology, it refers to somebody who is religious for just cultural reasons. They go to church Mm because it's their family tradition or to be part of a social network. And then someone who's intrinsically religious or has an intrinsic orientation is religious because they want to hold to the core tenets of the faith. They truly live the religion out. They truly believe what it teaches. And the benefits in sociology are always tied to intrinsic religiosity. So studies on, you know, the five big personality traits, racism, prejudice, pro-sociality are always tied to intrinsic religiosity. Just pretending uh, you don't really get the benefits that we see that are, you know, helping for sustaining society long term. So it's one of those rather unfortunate things. We just can't pretend like people actually have to <laughs> believe Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, and th- you know, I'm not just saying this because I want people to believe that this is just what the sociological research bears out. But that tells us we can't cre- treat Christianity as a means to an end. We just cannot treat it mm. as like we just have to use it to save Western civilization. You know, we, yes. we got to live the gospel out to the point where we would be really willing to sacrifice our civilization if it meant the gospel could go out further to more people. And I know that's Mm. a scary thing to think about, but I encourage people to read St. Augustine's work, The City of God, because he lived in a time when the Roman Empire was collapsing around him and the pagans were blaming the Christians, saying, you know, because we don't sacrifice to the pagan gods anymore, this is why our civilization is collapsing. And he said, no, these are, these were institutions meant to be temporary. What really matters is the kingdom, the city of God that's eternal. And they will go, they'll come and fall, but this will keep going forward, the kingdom itself. And when people have been focusing on that, despite the Roman Empire collapsing, they ended up building something better. You know, as the barbarians were invading, people moved into swamps and they learned to drain swamps. Um, as the Roman Empire was collapsing, they invented new plowing techniques that the Romans couldn't do. So they could finally farm Britain. 
Uh, they invented walk, uh, water power technology, water power clocks, wind power, these types of things. Because, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, people go through turmoil and they learn to thrive and get over it. But ultimately, though, one of that biggest, one of the biggest driving forces behind that historical change was Christianity. People were very much mm. interested in, you know, helping others around them, exploring the natural world that they believe was set up by God, like a great clock that they could discover natural laws for, for and produce new technologies out of that. So, I mean, like I say all that to say, you know, we just cannot pretend truly the benefits are tied to the intrinsic aspects of Christianity as much as we like to pretend it's just people getting together and being in social groups and having fun yep. and connecting in communities. No, that's, that's a side benefit. The real benefits come from the intrinsic aspects. Mm -hmm. It's not simply a tool that you can use and, you know, not, not, not really believe in it, but just sort of take the tool and cherry pick out of it. And I don't know, because if you do, you'll get version of it. You'll get what yeah. GK Chesterton called Christian ethics gone mad. And we'll be right back where we were in 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> you get wokeness basically. Um, I have a question for you, Michael, and it's, um, it, I don't know if you maybe um, maybe it's something you've considered before, but regardless, um, what do you think is the hardest part about being a Christian in this era and in this time and in this place? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I would say, you know, I'm, I may be wrong about this. Uh, I've not really thought too much about it, but the, what comes off the top of my head is uh, people afraid to stand up for their faith and actually fight against the machine, I guess. I think a lot of people are scared. Uh, you know, they just want to fit in. They just want to feed their families. They're worried about being canceled. Uh, you know, they don't want to go against the elites. You know, anyone who goes against the, the mainstream narrative is called racist, a bigot, uh, you know, homophobe, xenophobe, you name mm -hmm. it. And I think a lot of people just don't want that. You know, and I think people often, I think one of the biggest problems is people just sort of forgotten what Christ said that you will be persecuted. You will be hated for my name. And that's just a, a fact that's going to flow from that. Uh, and so I think a lot of people are just focused more on themselves. I, I think one of the biggest mistakes the, the American Christian culture created was the American dream, honestly, uh, mm -hmm. because, you know, we're not supposed to be focused on wealth building. We should be, if we should not, the American dream should have been, how can we create better communities for our families to grow up in? Not how I can create individual wealth and have a great big portfolio. The, sh the idea should be how much can, can I get wealth so that I can bless others? And I think we've moved more, we moved too much into, into individualism. I think in, there is individualism that's good, but we've gone too far in that direction. And that's really hurt us. And now people are so afraid to actually go out and do something good because they might sacrifice their individual happiness, their individual success or their individual wealth. And so we need to move away from individualism and back towards collectivism, but not too far. Mm -hmm. We don't want to go too far in that direction either. <laughs> we got to find a good, happy yeah. medium. You know, as I, I said to Matt Frad when I was on his show, Pints with Aquinas, Christians have to learn to hold the middle. We can't go in these extremes mm -hmm. in other directions. We got to try to hold the middle. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the one of the hardest things, certainly at scale. I mean, there's obviously individual challenges, but I think one of the hardest things at scale is finding the balance between Christianity and liberalism. Mm -hmm. Right. So, how much we've talked a little bit about how much influence there should be there, but how do you balance the principles and morality of Christianity 
with the look we 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 live ultimately in a classically liberal society if you're in a western country compared to the rest of the world compared to history you you live in a liberal society um so how do you balance those things right so because you because you get a lot of obvious clashes so let's say uh let's say freedom of speech right i'm pretty much mm -hmm. a freedom of speech absolutist um however when you so I, you know, I I spend a lot of time in in the UAE. The countries I spend the most time in are the UK, the UAE, and USA. All the United ones, and obviously each country has its own different approach to this. Um, so if you're in a if you're in an Islamic country, they you know they generally they don't front about it. They're like, no, we don't have absolute freedom of speech, right? You can't no no you can't blaspheme. You can't talk bad about the prophet. Maybe even you know the royal family, etc. Certain things are just like clearly off limits and that's because they don't want to let's let's do you know what it really is is that they, they put the adherence to the religion above so-called liberalism and what we in the west would consider freedom they're mm -hmm. like no it's more important that our religious principles are not undermined by people just being able to say and do whatever the heck they want about our most revered things and most revered people and even god himself right that's that's their attitude yeah. from from a western perspective whether people are conservative or liberal or progressive most people would consider that um authoritarian or or dogmatic or no 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 like that's the that's the wrong way because in the west whether or not we know it people generally put liberalism above above that and and people could argue that that's the way it should be because if you have pure true freedom of religion and freedom of speech and so on so I don't I don't know what the answer is here. This is the thing mm -hmm. that I think is complicated is how how do we as a society and as as nations thread that needle between okay, we support people's freedom of speech and freedom of expression and freedom of association and freedom of religion, but also um we but 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 also we we don't want this sort of complete undermining and desecration of the things that are most revered and, and sacred. You, you see what I mean? It's a, it, it's a complicated one. And I don't know sociopolitically, culturally, I, I'm not quite sure what the correct approach is on some of these things. I, I, th I think you can do it on an individual level, but I don't know. I don't quite know how it scales. Yeah. Well, it's complex and complex issues require complex solutions. There's not going to be a, a thing I can just give a 15 minute spiel to say that would fix everything. But I mean, you're, you're right about, you know, we don't want to go too far, like anti-free speech, but we'd also want to go too far to the left. I mean, rolling to Salem's paper, the role of Protestantism in democratic consolidation among transitional states looked at Protestant, Catholic and Islamic states. And he found that the Christian states correlated with more political stability, voice and accountability in government, uh, ability to create political transformation and the Islamic states did not. So we don't want to go too far in that direction. You know, the pendulum is really far to the left right now. We don't want to swing it, you know, swing it too far to the right and destroy stuff. So where do we find this balance? I mean, the balance between liberalism and Christianity. I think mm -hmm. the problem that liberalism has is it just, it destroyed too many other societal institutions and assumed we didn't need them. Yes. You know, like it, the idea originally in Europe was that, you know, the separation of church and state. We are going to have the state. It's going to focus on some things. The church will focus on another, 
other things. The family's going to focus on some things. The schools will focus on some things. And I think secular liberals went too far and say, well, we don't need the church anymore. We don't need the family anymore. We need the schools, but they need to be run by the state itself. And mm-hmm. the original idea was that, you know, the, that comes out of Christian Europe is this idea that there are different institutions for different purposes. And they, they sort of function together like holding up a table. And when you start throwing out one leg, the table's going to not work as well. So we do need Christianity, but we don't, but I, I do think there needs to be some sort of separation of church and state. The church works best when it's actually out doing work and it's not just being funded by the government because mm-hmm. what happens is the clerics, the priests get lazy. They just get money coming in. They're not going to do the work uh, when they actually need to go out and do charity, uh, find people that help support them to find donors actually help do their causes. They're more vo- motivated to go out and do the work because it's more grassroots based. So I think we need to recognize in the West that we need to have different institutions. We don't have a very well-rounded view right now of how humans can function societies. We just think we need government, government run schools, government run healthcare. If we have that, we'll be fine. But there needs to be these separate institutions that sometimes fight against each other in certain ways for different values, because sometimes out of struggle comes growth, uh, comes change sometimes we need. So I think we need to get back to the idea that we had about, we have the institution of the state, we have the institution of the church, the institution of the family, the institution of schools, and other various institutions as well. And we need to nurture them. We need to recognize that sometimes they'll be at odds, but that can be good because out of that chaos can come some growth. And Mm -hmm. there's going to be no perfect solution because humans are not perfect. As Immanuel Kant said, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. So we need to also recognize we're not going to get something perfect. And we need to be okay with that. We're not going to build a Mm -hmm. utopia until Christ returns, as I like to say. So I think if we can recognize that aspect of us, and just be okay with not being perfect, I think we'll actually do much better because we won't be trying so hard to turn something into it's not, which is crooked humanity into something that it could never really be. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I I think where it gets really tricky is when it gets into really serious issues, right? When it comes to something like the value of a human life. Yeah. Right. This is the this is a wall that I think probably maybe 30 years ago, people didn't think that we'd be facing where you're having, you know, conversation. Well, I, I, you know, I guess abortion laws and stuff were really from like the 1960s. So I guess, you know, people have been thinking about it for a while now. But I mean, look, I, I went back home. I went back to the UK um, for Christmas and I saw a leaflet that had been uh, dropped dropped into my parents' letterbox um, about, uh, you know, quote unquote, assisted dying, which is something that obviously is already already legal in places like Switzerland and the Netherlands, and they're, they're liberalizing it further in Canada. In fact, in some parts of Canada, it's now one of the leading causes of death. They call it MAID over there. Uh, tens of thousands of Canadians have been killed intentionally by by doctors and of course slippery slope right of course it starts with terminal illnesses and then it becomes mental illnesses and then it becomes oh you don't have enough money to survive or you've got some ptsd from the war or eventually it just becomes hey your body your choice like regardless of who you are if you're a consenting adult you should be able to end your end your life at any time now these are the type of things where you know, if everyone was operating from the same moral foundation, it wouldn't even be a conversation. It wouldn't mm-hmm. be. And it didn't used to be. 
but things have veered off enough in a direction now where you can, you know, people are pushing for a, a, a abortion up until the point of birth for any reason, which is, I think, is already the law in Canada. I mean, and the law is pretty extreme in the UK. I mean, it's for any reason, taxpayer funded up to 24 weeks. And then if there's any minor, like any issue, like beyond that. Um, and now you're now at the other end of life, you've got all these conversations about so-called uh, assisted dying, where you can just go to a doctor and have your life ended. Now, as I, I don't even want to even have to say, like, as a Christian, that disgusts me. Like, I would think that even for non-religious people, this should be something that makes them all go like, oh, my gosh, like, what are we moving towards as a society? But I'm seeing more and more people defending and promoting these kind of ideas and going, oh, actually, you know, maybe you should have that. Right. That's freedom. That's liberalism. And. Again, this is, and, and I'm sure, you, of course, when it comes to these topics, you'll have people say, "Hey, you know, don't don't bring your religion into this. Don't bring your." And I'm like, "Dude, I'm I'm not quoting scripture here. I'm just saying, like, yo, do we not even have the same morality and viewpoint towards the value of a human life anymore? Because if we if we don't, then I I see that getting I see that getting very dystopian very quickly. I could see a future. I could see a potential future in you know 30, 40 years from now where like it's pretty gnarly where people sort of approach to human life and its value and what people can and should do and what's an infringement on freedom and whatever is just has just become totally perverse where it's become that um consent is the only principle of morality and as long mm -hmm. as something is consensual no matter what it is or no matter how heinous it is um it should be not just permissible, but perhaps even promoted and celebrated. This really seems to be the direction that we're going if we're if we're not careful. Yeah, it, it's it's very scary, uh, and this is again, as I said, it's Christian ethics gone mad. It's people they're so focused on caring for others, they end up killing them because they don't want them to experience any sort of pain, whether physical or mm -hmm. mental. And you know, they it's it's unfortunate because you know I, I think of Jonathan Heights, uh, different moral foundations. It's you know, people that tend to gravitate more towards secularism just care about harm, fairness. We got to reduce harm, increase fairness. You know, but a Christian, someone who's more conservative, is going to say, "Well, what about the sanctity of life itself? Mm -hmm. uh, what about the the uh, you know what they're going through?" And we just can't take a life because we're not God. There's something sacred there that needs to continue on. And so, you know, you can look at heights, different moral foundations. You can say that you know people that are more conservative Christians have a more well-rounded view of different virtues that they have to think about when looking at these situations. If all we are thinking about is fairness and fairness and harm, the two that Hyde talks about, you're going to go off into these dystopian nightmares because how far are we going to go? Well, we can't let this person suffer anymore because they're depressed. So we're just going to kill them. We got to have, we can't have, to have abortions up till, you know, the, the, two minutes before the child is born because the mother might change her mind at the last minute. We don't want to infringe or, on her. Or, 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 even after, or even afterwards, I'm sure you've seen those people advocate that. Well, yeah, but if you go back to the ancient Roman Empire, that was the norm. They didn't think a, yeah. a kid up to the age of like two or so, roughly, was mm -hmm. actually an individual. So we can identify brothels by the amount of infant graves around them because they would have, um, they would, that's where they would bury the infant. They'd have infant, they'd bury them until they get back to work kind of thing. And so, Maybe we'll move more to that direction. It's scary to think about, but we do need some something to tether us to the ground to prevent us 
from going off in this direction. I remember my pastor said, the problem with our society now is it's like a plant that has been plucked up from the ground so it can get closer to the sun. Uh, mm. You cannot, it cannot, it will look very pr pretty for some time being because it grew from an, a great foundation. But now that it's been pulled out from that foundation, it's going to wither and die. So, you know, there, there's, we got to be very careful about that what we think we can pluck out from our Christian heritage, our Christian foundation and think we're going to be okay. We can't. These are tied very much to the Christian religiosity aspects and to think we can just get away from them. I think in 30 or 40 years, I know long-term I'm optimistic. I think we will revert yes. back to the a more of a Christian foundation, but 30 or 40 years, I think a lot of people are going to look back and go, oh God, what have we done? Uh, we were just trying to help people and look at this dystopia we've created. Yeah, it's scary, man. And I, I think about this stuff very deeply. Um, one of the, like, it's it's one of the reasons why I, I decided to move to the UAE, honestly. Um, <laughs> I was looking at my country, I was looking at the USA, and I'm thinking, gosh, where do I want to raise my my future kids and family? Like, where will I feel comfortable when I see this trajectory, all of these different things are on? And I'm like, man, I'm, I've got to return to the Middle East. I grew up in Saudi Arabia and I'm like, man, I, I got to move back to the, I got to move back to the Gulf. Cause actually it, it's crazy. I, I said this on Twitter and, um, or X now, and I actually expected to receive, there's, there's something I said last year and I, I was surprised that I didn't get as much pushback and outright anger as, uh, as I was expecting. Um, I thought that a lot of people were going to kind of, you know, some, some people got mad at it, but people actually were way more understanding than I expected them to be. And I basically said that um, when I'm in a Gulf country like Saudi Arabia or the UAE or Qatar, I was, I think I wrote like something, this is going to sound crazy, but despite being like totally Islamic countries, in many aspects, they feel more Christian to me. Mm-hmm in terms of people's values, ethics, behavior, attitude towards family, attitude towards children, attitude towards human life, attitude towards God, what they tolerate, what they don't, and so on. I was like, I actually feel more comfortable as a Christian <laughs> in these places as I do. Like if I go to, I was in San Francisco um, about six months ago when I, to, to interview Elon. And I spent two days there. I've been to San Francisco before, but just walking around the city and just soaking it all in with my different senses and interacting and seeing, I was just like, this, it, it felt ungodly for lack of, for lack of a better word. It felt like God has left this place. It, it, yeah. it felt, it was genuinely depressing and sad and just seeing the human suffering, all these people on drugs, just scattered around the streets Some people just lying on the floor just injecting and smoking and the the smell and i was just like and then they think it's better by just throwing rainbow flags everywhere as if that mm -hmm. makes it all good and i was just like gosh this um this is strange and then i go to dubai or i go to doha and i'm just like okay i'm very aware that i'm a minority uh you know i'm a i'm a, I'm a mi minority religion here and i'm a foreigner and a guest in many ways but i'm just you know, people are just people are closer to God and people can have their, you know, their thoughts and opinions on, you know, Islam and this and that. But in terms of the way it actually functions, in terms of the way like the families are so much tighter and closer and people's view towards 
dating and marriage and, you know, male female relationships and having children and all that stuff. A lot of it is just kind of what the West had not so long ago. It's the, it's the mm -hmm. same sort of values and morals that were just sort of totally completely the norm in the UK or completely the norm in the USA not very long ago. And they've just maintained it. And in fact, they've liberalized in some good ways and are in yeah. the process of that. And I think that one reason why I think um, people are going to call me a Dubai show for this, but I think one reason why um, the Gulf countries are are, are going to gain a lot of ground in the last couple of decades is because I think they simply look at the West and they do their cherry picking, right? They, they mm -hmm. take the things that they like and the things that would benefit their society and their economy and their tourism or whatever. And they're like, okay, you know what? We've been too conservative in certain ways. We can open yeah. up here. We can open up there. We can open up there. But they also have an example of how far they don't want to go. They can look at certain places. They can look at Canada. They can look at the U.S. and you know certain cities and be like, okay, we, we do not want to turn into that. We don't mm -hmm. want our children. We don't want our sons and daughters uh, coming home saying they don't know what gender they are or try to, you know, putting kids on hormones or doing these bizarre surgeries or, you know, having rainbow flags everywhere and i don't know drag queen story time they're like we absolutely are not having any of that um but also hey we could let women drive we could let people <laughs> like you know go to share you, 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 so so i think that they're 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 getting the they're getting the balance and um i i hope that i hope that the west can learn from that in the other direction i hope that people can be like okay a uh, pendulum swung a little bit too far this way let's let's come back to some sane middle and I agree with you. I think long, long, long term, um, I do think that'll happen. I just don't know if within my own lifetime of, I don't know, the next five decades or so, if it's going to, if that's going to happen in time for like myself and my future kids. Yeah. Which I is, mean, which I is, totally which is kind of a depressing, it's kind of a depressing statement, but like, that's genuinely how I, how I feel. Well, I mean, I can understand where you're coming from, but I could give a more positive outlook, perhaps. Uh, like, do. you know, yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to see other countries thriving, of course. I, as long as the Salafis don't get the things they want, I think the Middle East will do fine in terms of their cherry picking. But there is also the, uh, I've seen a, some signs that they may slowly start to go more into the secularization process and start to adapt things that may not be beneficial long term. But again, I think that's decades away. But I think we need to keep in mind right now is that so I can't speak for what's happening in Canada or Europe, but what I'm seeing a lot in the US is a lot of young people are really missing something sacred. A lot of the people that I when I started leading to Christianity, when I started my ministry, I was surprised were becoming Catholic, Orthodox, Lutheran, Anglican, high churches is what they were attending. And I was attending a typical evangelical church at the time and going, well, that's, that's odd. I never would have thought that. But I think there's something that these churches offer that, you know, your typical evangelical megachurch doesn't, which is access to the sacred. This body and bread really is the body. This this bread and wine really is the body and blood of Christ. You're, you're approaching the sacred here. There are sacred rituals we do that you have to partake in. You're not just going to a rock concert every week uh, with some, and hearing a mediocre sermon. You're actually going to approach the sacred. And I see a lot of young people starving for that. So I'm seeing a lot of the young people that I, I've helped lead to Christ uh, go to those types of churches and go in that direction. And I see a lot of young people yearning for that right now. 
And again, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the people being raised right now are being raised in very conservative religious homes. There be homeschooling is on the rise in the U.S. Uh, going to charter schools or um, you know, private schools is on the rise right now. You know, there are waiting lists for certain private schools I know about that are very Christian in how they teach. Uh, and so secularism sows its own seeds of destruction. You create a, a society that polarizes your opponents. So the religious people start raising their kids uh, and having more kids in ways that, you know, you know that they can't be infiltrated by the seculars. But then the secularist community does not produce population, uh, enough population but, but, to replace them. But 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 that that's why they want to put people through the education system and with all the media propaganda, right? Like they need to convert, they need to convert your kids, right? Like and, and right. that's what they largely do. That is true, but I mean, also that's going to be harder to do with the rise of independent media now coming out. I mean, you know, like for example, uh, my daughter doesn't really watch PBS. You know, we we find certain things on YouTube for the for her that we say she's allowed to watch. And we go, okay, you can watch this mm -hmm. kind of thing. You know, she's not going to be getting the traditional media intake that you and I got when we only had Saturday morning cartoons and stuff, and where they can put subliminal messages in there like that. And uh, so, I I'm actually more hopeful for the next upcoming generations as long as Christians do the work that needs to be done. You, you as a mm -hmm. parent need to be the primary one, primarily one raising your kids. So every night my daughter and I sit down and we read the Bible together. I'm going to teach her the Bible. I'm going to be her primary educator. So I'm teaching her to read by reading the Bible together. And so you, you cannot outsource, you know, training your children up to a church or to a school. You have to be the primary one to do that. So I think if we buckle down and we do that, we will see, uh, the type of positive growth we want. Now, I do think we'll go through some more turmoil before we get there, but I do see a lot of Christians waking up. I do see a lot of them going, you know, I don't want to live in this secular society. What happened mm -hmm. to the Christian society we had in the 50s? Let's get back to that. And so, you know, long-term, I'm, I'm hopeful. I do think mm -hmm. you know, we'll go through some trials, but I think in the U.S. it's going to be okay long-term. I, I can't speak for Canada or Europe. I think things are worse <laughs> there, but I think, you know, you, you're going to get, when you come to the U.S., you're going to get San Francisco, L.A., New York. Come to mm -hmm. Middle America. Come to Tucson. Oh, yeah. Come to, I've been there. <laughs> you know, I, I used to live in southern Illinois in a little town there. I mean, it's complete, it's night and day difference. The people there are not yeah. like your typical people you're going to see in the big cities. The, the USA has an advantage in this regard because of the 50 states because yeah. you have much more decentralization and you also have a gigantic country. You have to remember, I always have to remind some of my American friends, like when I'm talking about the UK, I always have to tell them, look, the UK is four countries and <laughs> those four countries combined are significantly smaller than just Texas. So when you're comparing the UK and the USA, yeah, you can compare them in certain ways, but like in terms of the population, in terms of the geography, so on. And in terms of the governance, UK is a lot more top down, right? So it, it, it's not like in the UK, there's a place where you can live, which has different laws, like totally different laws and governance or whatever to London. It's just like, no, wherever you are, even if you're in Scotland, if you're in Wales, if you're in, uh, you know, the South Coast, North of England, whatever it is, it's kind of top down. There isn't that same decentralization. And the US is one of the only countries that really has that to that extent. 
um, in France, it's a lot more, yes, there's local mayors and stuff, but there's not a lot of power, right? It's not like, oh, you're in the north of France and the the laws and the culture and the size, like, it's like totally different to how it is in the south or whatever. The US has that going. So what I think is going to happen, um, if I'm totally honest with you, and, and is I, I see a massive bifurcation that's going to happen. So I'm not worried about, I, I'm not worried about, I'm not worried about your kids. I'm not worried about my kids. I, I think that I think that the kids who grow up in with in in more let, let's say more conservative and certainly more sane households who grow up in a, a two-parent family, a mom and dad who raise them with certain values, may, maybe they're homeschooling or they're going to a good school and they instill those values and they teach them all those foundational principles. I think they're going to be totally fine. What I'm concerned with is the other, I don't know, could be 50 to 70% of the population um, who's growing up. I mean, the USA has the largest number of children growing up in single mother households, right? The dad, mm -hmm. dad's not even there, right? They've got very little guidance. Maybe they're in a bad community. They're not growing up with religious values. They're not oftentimes growing up with really any values. Um, and I'm, I'm very worried about them because that's a very large population. And you're already seeing it. They're being raised by social media. They're being raised by TikTok. Like they, you know, they've they know nothing about the Bible or Jesus, but they know about TikTok. They know about these influencers. They know about pronouns. They know about like all that stuff. And I just think that there's going to be like a, a strange split that we haven't seen before. I think in the past, you know, most people were at least coming from a very similar foundation, whereas now you're just going to get like a real divergence. Um, I also worry about how this is going to bear out in terms of like the economy and in terms of health, even, I think you're, you're going to have people who are like, you know, they're, they're healthy, they're mentally healthy, they're physically healthy, they're physically, spiritually healthy, whatever. And I think you're going to have a percentage of the population who in all of these regards, like they're really, really in the gutter. Um, and no one has shown them a better way. And they've just sort of been pulled into this abyss. And I, I, I do worry I do worry about those people. I think the technological change is happening. And then I don't know, you throw AI into the mix and mm. we haven't even, we haven't mastered smartphones and social media <laughs> and you're already like, oh, okay, well, I don't know. I'm just like, are, are, are boys and girls, men and women are in those environments, will they even be able to relate to each other? Are you going to have a generation of young men who are going to grow up and they're not even interested in women because they're fully satisfied by a combination of pornography and artificial intelligence and whatever weird other stuff they come up with. And you're now going to just get like a massive skew. These are all the, th these are things that I, I wish like were, were not true and were not possibilities, but th these are just things that I, I, I see happening um, slowly and then quickly where I'm just like, man, this is going to be a, like, like a, a child who is two years old or five years old right now, by the time they're like, 25 there the world is going to look very strange i think there's a percentage of people it's like yep yeah, they're going to be totally fine they're going to be just be normal they're going to be well adjusted healthy successive successful productive adults who are going to what then want to pass that on but i'm just like man is there going to just be this big chunk of young people who uh, look I'll, I'll i'll tell you who who else i even think about and i i don't know i don't even know the numbers on this but like think about it. okay when we were when we were children michael uh how how many how many quote unquote trans kids were in your school 
Zero. Zero, right? Zero. We're going to have a generation where there, like, I don't know the numbers, but there's going to be at least thousand, uh, possibly, possibly a million plus young people who have been like, like you're, you're putting them on hormones, your puberty blockers, so like you're, you're number one, you're rendering some of these people infertile. So you're yep. rendering someone infertile before the age of 18. So in the future, like at 18, a lot of people don't want to have kids, but it's very likely that by the time they're 30 plus, they might be like, hey, actually, I'd like to have a family. And now you can't. And now you're feeling mm -hmm. resentful of your parents. You're feeling resentful of the medical system. You're feeling resentful of all the people who allowed all of this stuff to happen. And so I just think, I don't know, there, there's there's these sort of brand new, we have all the existing problems. And then there's going to these be these sort of brand new, strange and polarizing things, which we're, we're you know, we're experimenting, people are experimenting with now. And I don't think they're thinking, okay, 20, 30 years down the line, what is this going to do to this generation of people? I, I, I'm worried about that imbalance. I'm worried about having a, a severe imbalance where half, half of, let's say half of the people are well-adjusted, moral, have good values, want to have families, whatever. And then you've got another half where they've just you know, been thrown to the wolves for the past 20 years and they don't even know how to manage themselves. Well, I th yeah, I think that's where we're headed. Uh, and I, I think th there's going to be a lot of people in those positions, but I think a lot of them are going to be looking for something more solid and looking for like, well, how did we get here? So I think what you're describing yeah. here is what I've been talking about, like secularism, this atheistic, liberal, secularist ideas that sows the seeds of its own destruction. It's unsustainable long-term. People eventually mm -hmm. want a real foundation. They want, they're going to return to their traditional Christian heritage is what my take is. And this is, I'm starting to see signs of this now in the ministry work I do online when young people yeah. come to me and they're like, you know, I've, I've become Catholic. I was raised atheist. Now I'm Catholic because I needed something sacred to hold on to. Mm -hmm. I needed something real. So I think that's going to happen. What it could, what it could lead to long-term. I don't know. I mean, it's going to be very hard to predict. I don't think it's going to be a civil war. We may go through some sort of conflict. I don't think it's going to be a full-out civil war. Uh, yeah. I'm much more. I get maybe I'm I'm just much more hopeful for the future. But I think ultimately, as long as we as the church become what Christ called us to be, which is a city on a hill, He said we're the salt mm. of the earth, and He said that not because salt is supposed to be irritating, but because salt makes things more flavorful. Is what He was trying to get at. You know, if we can actually. Uh, get back to what the gospel preaches. We can actually start going out and doing the charity work we're called to do, start building the type of communities we want. I think a lot of those children raised in those horrible situations are going to be like, mm. I want to be part of that. So we need to be welcoming, opening, open, bring them in, offer forgiveness, offer the forgiveness, Christ offer them and say, Hey, you're welcome mm. in here. You know, you can't bring the sin in to the church, but you, we, you, we will, we will walk with you and help you get through these types of things so that you can experience real change and real human flourishing. So, you know, we just need to be, we as Christians need to set ourselves up to be ready for when that happens. We don't want to be judgmental or rejecting them. We need to be welcoming and open and say, yes, come be part of the community. Come be part of something real. Yes, dude. I, I, I like that take because I think that's actually an extremely important point you just made there. Um, not from any sort of sense of false optimism, but just seeing what's potentially going to come in that regard and how we should collectively 
respond to it because yeah as as i said that's it's 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 interesting because uh you know i'm i'm an uncle times 10 i've got i've got 10 nieces and nephews i'm not a i'm not a father yet but lord willing i will be within the next couple of years um and i really but but i have i i deeply care about children and that and and those next generations and i i, I do consider a lot okay what type of world society and culture are they going to be inheriting um one thing i notice in lots of the socio-cultural and even political conversations is um children don't get considered very much in them um people just kind of talk about the adults and they're not this is true of economic policy this is true of the approach towards housing this is true of like lots of the policies that they're doing the only one where they actually talk about kids in the next generation is when they're sort of pushing their climate change stuff. But apart from that, there's just not a lot of conversation about, okay, well, let's be real, you know, people who are 60, 70, 80 plus in some cases, like, you know, in the next couple of decades, that generation is going to die off and we're going to have new human beings being born into the world. And every generation is always going to have to inherit the you know, the, the values and the benefits and the good things, but also the, the problems and the, the issues and the consequences of those previous generations. And I don't want, I, I don't, I don't want like millions of children to be, I don't know, messed up or sacrificed in the process, you know, because, you know, because of the stupidity of the adults in the room, maybe that's the best way to put it. Right. Like I don't yeah. want, those young kids to suffer all of this stuff because the adults weren't being adults and making good and smart decisions and just drawing boundaries and lines where certain things just say, look, we know better. <laughs> we're not allowing this. We're, we're, we're not permitting this. This is, this is just a bad idea. Uh, maybe you're going to hate it, hate us for this for the next couple of years, but you know what, when you're older, you will thank us. You know what? You'll you'll be happy that we did not remove your genitals and put you on estrogen, <laughs> because there's a good chance you're 15 years old right now, and maybe you know you like pink and you like girls' clothes, but there's a good chance that in 10 to 15 years from now, or maybe even seven years from now, um, you're you're going to just be a man who wants to have a relationship and maybe wants to get married and maybe wants to have children. So let's not do that to you. Um, but instead, they're just going, oh, cool. Let's affirm this. Let's do all this. Let's do all these irreversible things. And people don't really seem to be thinking like, okay, what this might make us feel good in the, uh, and progressive for the next, you know, in the here and the now, but what are the consequences on this, uh, you know, on this theoretical young man's future that's not brought into the picture. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's 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 terrifying, and there's going to be a lot of people going through that. Uh, I mean, the we can lament about it, and there, there there's time for that. But we also need to be saying, what are we going to do about that? Are we yeah. going to be welcoming and open to these people when we have a young man or a young woman who went through these surgeries, has been on these these hormone pills, and then they turn 25, 26, and they go, "This was a mistake." Where can I go for help? Do people are going to understand yeah. this? Well, we as the Christian church need to be open and say, come here. We are we are welcoming you here. And that's going to help fix that slowly but surely. 
one of the things I say is God works in gradual processes. He slowly builds mm -hmm. the church. He slowly sanctifies believers. Getting out of this mess is going to be a slow, gradual process. And we need to be fighting, working every step of the way. There's not much we can do for people raising their children in that in those type of positions other than try to convince them not to. But when these kids get older and they have gone through these horrible circumstances, we need to be welcoming and bring them in and say, it's okay. You know, Christ said at one point, there are many that were made eunuchs for the kingdom of God. Some people have been made eunuchs, but God can still use them. Some people have become by choice. And he was not talking literally about people just becoming celibate, but some people have been forced in that position. And the kingdom, the, the church was always welcoming and open to them and bringing them in. So we need to act like that. And slowly and gradually, we will slowly get out of this, but we need to be willing to act and put in the hard work. And I just worry that a lot of people on the right are getting so polarized. They just hate anyone who's on that other side, who's gone through that process. Yeah. And that's not the mentality we need to have. No doubt, man. Dude, Michael, it's been an honor having you on the podcast. You're a, you're a guy I could talk to for hours and hours and hours, but I want to be respectful of your time. Where can people find and follow you online? Yeah, so you can follow me on YouTube, uh, Inspiring Philosophy. I'm on TikTok, same name. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all under the same name. Uh, I do a lot of related videos to like uh, topics we were talking about tonight. A lot of videos defending Christianity, giving evidence for it, that kind of stuff. So uh, I do mostly documentary style videos, and that's typically what I stick to. But I also do shorts now. Awesome. Michael, thanks for coming on the show, man. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. It's been an honor. Thank you. Sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, 